This podcast is brought to you by Artful Scribe, a writer development agency based in Southampton, supported by Arts Council England and other partners. To find out more, please visit www.artfulscribe.co.uk. Content warning for the following episode. Discussions of negative lived experiences of trans and genderqueer folks. Mentions of grief and loss. They Them of Lucid Tales specialises in fiercely tender revolution, radical self-honesty and wild queer love. They're a previous Purbeck Valley Slam champion, hammer and tongue veteran and freeway poet and have been crowned the monarch of the extended metaphor. A hedonist queer with more genders than brain cells and more heart than sense, they bring decadent drag, drunken tales of debauched gods and silly sausage energy to every smouldering performance. Their audio-based bedtime story series can be found on the Lucid Tales YouTube channel and their first book of short stories, Genre Fluid, was self-published in 2020. Other works have been published by Unknown Magazine and Nebulous Magazine. found now that the sun is is kind of back out and with us it's been harder to find time to kind of sit down and write because you want to be outside more or do you find it's actually been a good sort of sunny injection of creative inspiration I think my answer to that's going to be really unfair because I had top surgery (laughs) so I've spent loads of time in bed so I've written a lot I've been submitting poems to online magazines I've been working on a conversion therapy modern day trans version of the selkie wife story which is really fun and have been uh, putting together like some stuff to do with a local folk tale about um, a woman who turns into a hare and back again. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. So lots of writing. Yeah, that sounds like a been really busy time for you. Would you um, care to share with us your the work you started doing on the um, is it the, the, the Selkie um, story you said? Yeah, mentioned? yeah. So the Selkie story is Selkies are like seal people. Basically, they're from from all over really but they're mostly from around sort of the coast of Scotland and uh, the selkies will come onto land uh, drop their seal skin and you know do what they do for a little bit in human form and it's about the original selkie wife story is a man finds a selkie woman's seal skin hides it from her so she can't turn back into a seal and makes her marry him basically and then eventually she gets it back and either she and her kids kill him or she just abandons them all or she and the kids abandon him so the the updated version I'm trying to do or like modern take on it is uh, a trans person who thinks they found refuge with somebody who is like hiding their testosterone and their binder and stuff and eventually they wind up going through the whole conversion therapy process and then their kids find the box full of all the old photos of them and all of their like you know binders and stuff and it's like the process of like retransition later in life mm. so we'll see how that goes it's not terribly cheery but it's hopefully happy at the end <laughs> I see this. Um, this is something that I've noticed quite a lot in the in the work that you do. You've got um, a real a real way of connecting with with folk stories and fairy tales, um, sort of mythic 
uh, yarns in your work and, and like kind of seeing that from a from a queer perspective um, as well as from other perspectives of course um, what was it that like kind of first drew you to like writing these kind of these kind of stories um, it was a mix of things so I grew up in a house that was really full of books of fairy tales whether that was like Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen or just random European folk tales um, and lots of books of myths and legends like I still have my mum's book of Norse mythology that she grew up with in my van that I use for a reference quite a lot and so that was always something that kind of surrounded me and then as uh, so we grew up as reenactors my sister and me we were English Civil War reenactors so there was a lot of storytelling around like campfires as well and then the biggest influence was we had the VHS tapes of Jim Henson's The Storyteller, mm-hmm. which stars John Hurt as a storyteller with all of like Jim Henson's puppets um, telling all of these amazing European folk tales. And I used to be able to recite them like word for word. So mm. lots of inspiration from that. But I've just always really loved folk stories and mythology and the ways that we come up with to tell each other about ourselves and about the world around us and about each other. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful yeah it's like I think it does seem to be a style of storytelling that does really speak to the queer experience particularly I think the the trans experience because it's like so much of it is about you know I think I suppose having a space to kind of explore things where you feel I don't know perhaps that you know it's kind of a way of like having your giving your mind kind of freedom to inhabit the world you kind of would want to inhabit in kind of the everyday if that makes sense you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think there is an element of that kind of fantasization with it. Um, so one story I wrote recently was a story about an Etchuski, which is like a Kelpie for anyone who knows what they are. But um, it's a sort of water horse. It's a it's kind of like the Selkie in a way, but it's vicious and eats people, especially the livers. Um, and if you're a man it's very likely to just eat you if you're a woman there's a chance that it might take you away into its sea lair and marry you or it also might eat you so you know it's a bit of a (laughs) toss-up and that's about um a trans woman who uh, she winds up uh, choosing to go with an etchuski uh because it's better than what the village is currently offering um and it's that kind of element of i think with folk tales particularly there's so much uh fascinating darkness in them that really calls to us on a a lot of different levels and you know like kids love it adults love it we we get really into those uh stories of you know of monsters and mayhem basically and Mm. I think it's really at least for me I find it very empowering to find myself in the monsters and mayhem as well as in like the you know the heroes and heroines like it's really nice to be able to own that darkness and make it into something you know, affirming and powerful, like, oh, they think we're monsters. Great. Let's be monsters. Let's have mm. fun with this. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that, that's kind of like a tradition we have as as humans from all backgrounds, like throughout history, whether you're, you know, you talk about, you know, the ancient tradition of of, 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 voc- of um, oral t- or uh, long form poems, or like, you know, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, or, you know, kind of more modern things, you know, like kind of, um, you know, superhero, like kind of Marvel stuff or, you know, kind of the work of Neil Gaiman. It's all it's all a way of just kind of seeing ourselves from a different perspective, really, isn't it? Yeah, hugely. Um, one thing I found recently was this series of um, uh, like academic research papers by I can't quite remember his name. I think it might have been Harold Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty certain the surname's Jenkins. and The first name begins with H. But it's about fan fiction and about how it's a reclamation of the 
storytelling tradition. It's taking modern myths, so say Marvel, for example, and taking them out of the um, copyright uh, intellectual property model and putting them back into communal ownership, um, mm. which is what stories always have been. You know, we've always told them to each other and changed them every time and made them our own. So it's, yeah, I thought, found that a really interesting sort of take on that. And I think there is a lot at the moment uh, telling us that unless you are pursuing that, uh, you know, intellectual property or um, sort of copyright format of uh, storytelling that you shouldn't do it at all and that's complete rubbish <laughs> mm -hmm. like it's something that you know we that belongs to all of us so let's let's do it let's tell each other stories and let's share them and let's change them in whatever ways we want because well the life's only so long <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's fun it gives us it tells us who we are it makes us happy mm, absolutely and I think that's where your work I think fits like a sort of a really lovely in-between place between, which is, you know, like we were talking about, it's quite, um, in the way things have been traditionally, um, uh, it's somewhere between kind of like poetry and like fiction, you know, kind of as in like kind of, you know, sitting down and reading a book, fiction, and like kind of, you know, going to an open mic or a poetry event, poetry, your kind of work sits in between, kind of in this place of, of storytelling. Mm. You know? Yeah, I think the funny thing is a lot of people don't know what to do with it because of that, um, because it's not written word on a page, which prose, fiction, that's what we think of, or a movie or something along those lines. And it's also not poetry, which you sort of sit and listen and just take on. It's something that can be so much more interactive and is something that, at least here, we've, you know, there, there are storytelling festivals, there's a huge storytelling culture, but it's not in the wider consciousness in the same way. And it's really funny doing like a storytelling performance to people who just don't have any response whatsoever the whole way through and then at the end come up and go wow that was great mm. and you're just like wow I could not tell <laughs> because we just we don't have this as a culture anymore and we you know I think maybe a lot of that does come from the sort of white western colonizing space of if it's not written down it's not important mm. and that's you know I think that's something that's denied us a lot of our agency in creating this fluid storytelling weave like tapestry between all of us I think coming to yourself as a, as, a, as a queer person, we realise, oh, there is another option. I can live and be, be myself. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but that is the mm. other option. I mean, I think that's like returning sort of to the idea of joy and like queer joy. That's so much, I think, of what that is, is the release from defiance. Mm. Like we, in a lot of ways, have to live our lives as defiantly as, as we can in order to survive as who we are because there is a lot of hostility in the world. But when you get to just really be exactly who you are, where you are, with who you are, with people with whom you can have a quiet heart and not have to be uh, sort of formed by your defiance and your strength and your tenacity is where that really like intense beauty of queer joy just comes in because it's where you can just relax and be in the sunlight. Exactly, and not and not worry about the, the shadow that other people see. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I want to share a piece from um, an extract from a piece by uh, Ada Yancey, which talks about um, the word queer and a sort of kind of riffing on some ideas that we've been talking about uh, just now. So she writes, 
I needed to justify what I had in front of me. Who was I? What was I? I knew I was sad and angry and confused, but what to do with all of that? Where did I belong? And that's when the word popped in my mind. Queer. Queer. I instantly calmed down. I said the word out loud repeatedly. Queer. 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 Different inflections, tones, speeds. Queer as an anti-category. Queer as just me. Queer as a place I can stretch and exist fully. Queer as a promise that everything is possible. Queer as a multitude. Queer as a liberation. After I found that new way to express, describe and comfort myself, I started giving myself permission. Explicit permission. And I think that that, that kind of... I, I love all of that, but particularly I think that, that last line really spoke to me. Just the sense of... The, the word, I think, as you talked about earlier, it's, it, it's kind of, it, it gives so much space to inhabit and it really is kind of giving you that push to kind of be yourself, giving you that permission, just go on, go on, be the most you you can be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that I really love about the word queer because it is just that openness. No one can gatekeep queer. It's really easy for people who want to, to gatekeep almost everything in the world, but I don't really believe anyone can actually gatekeep queer because the whole point is that it's open and it just means weird at the end of the day. There are plenty of things that come under the t- under the word queer that don't, you know, that don't necessarily have any other definition and that's, that's great. Mm. That's so good. Mm, mm. You know, it's wonderful. We have all of these different, um, like, words and labels and micro labels now as well i think that's fantastic because it means that we can really get to nitty-gritty of what it is that we're experiencing and it's so wonderful that we can get right down to kind of like down to little brass tacks about ourselves and the people and the people we interact with and the people we love and it's also wonderful to be able to sort of pull back out and scale out and go queer that's all of it everything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah exactly that's like the bird's eye view of the situation but if yeah. you want to dig down right into the dirt you can you can have those conversations mm. yeah like you know i can talk with my best friend about oh yeah i feel like uh, you're like oh well when they were saying to me the other day they were like yeah i feel like i'm like a gender fornit void punks you know gender person i was like that's great and i get all of that but you wouldn't go out and just say that to like some random stranger who doesn't know any of those words you just say i'm queer yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know it enables you to have the uh, the detailed conversations and the in passing <laughs> as well Mm, mm, exactly. And I think when I first realised I could use that word about myself if I if I wanted to, it it, it was quite a joyful experience because I almost felt like a sort of um um like a like a like a kid who like kind of was saying like I, I don't know the sense this word that I've been told was like a like a rude word or like a you know you can't say that word. It's like oh I could actually use that word about me and that would actually kind of give me some peace and a, and a space to exist in the world that people loosely understand, mm. you know, kind of just as an easy thing, kind of rather than being, well, I'm, I, you know, I've got my roller decks of labels. Let me just roll them out for you and we'll just keep, <laughs> we'll talk through them all. Um, you scroll through, it just keeps going. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but you're so right. It is just um, an easy way in for people. I, I mean, understandably, not everybody is going to uh, get or, or or even get past the the kind of the old definition of it um in a in an lgbt context um mm. but i've spoken to lots of people who would you know classically categorize themselves as you know as like as, as gay or bisexual now kind of saying well I, I also use the word queer because i feel like it, it covers a lot of my identity the, the kind of i suppose sexual orientation part uh, or the way that people used to see me in a kind of like who are you in society and where do you belong the, the queer fills in a lot of the gaps that that sort of doesn't cover if 
Mm, yeah, and I mean, that's I, I was going to say that's always been the case. It hasn't, but it's been the case for several decades at least. Like, you know, the people going around in the, you know, 70s and 80s with banners saying not gay as in happy, but queer as in fuck you. Mm. And that's, you know, we have always, not everybody, but as a community, a lot of us have always used the word. Like we've, like any marginalised group, we reclaim the words that are used against us, whether that's uh, women going on slut walks, whether that's queer people calling ourselves queers or dykes or faggots or any of that. Those are all words that we have chosen to take back and go, yeah, screw this. Like, if that's what you're going to call me, that's what I'm going to call me. And actually, it's my word and it doesn't matter anymore, except to me. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of us who don't like uh, being referred to by specific terms and that's fantastic and great as well. And it's just wonderful that we can have that level of self-identification and also still have that like sensitivity and tenderness towards each other. Psst. I was interested to ask you as well, because um, knowing that you're a you're someone who as a performer does drag as well, I'm very interested in the concept of kind of like, which which drag is very open about, you know, the, the sense we're kind of, you're stepping into a heightened version of yourself, whatever that looks like. And um, I do wonder whether that some somehow plays into when we sit down to write, whether we do sort of take on like a uh, you know for want of a better term like a drag persona as like kind of creative people you know because it's giving you that freedom that something like drag gives you to put on different outfits and put on different stylings and kind of access a different part of yourself that's not normally shown to the world oh that's not something i've ever really thought about before i think when i th- when i think of myself when i'm writing i think of myself as a window mm. i'm just there's there's stuff happening and I'm just I'm just writing it like if that's at least with fiction like if I'm sat down I'm writing a novel then I'm I don't I'll I'll, sometimes I'll plan them these days which is a revolutionary thing for me because I never used to plan anything um and now I actually write out novel plans which is makes it a lot easier as it turns out Mm. (laughs) um but even with that I never really feel like I'm a puppeteer Mm. I kind of feel like I'm watching this happen. I, I write because it ha- the thing I want to read hasn't been written yet. So mm. in order to read it, I have to write it. Mm. So for me, the act of writing is reading, but moving my hands a lot at the same time, <laughs> more or less. Um, and then with uh, like poetry stuff, I don't know. I think a lot of my poetry is very much, it's just me saying a lot of stuff. Mm. It's It's become very much like you know everyone always says about how poetry is therapy it very much is I'm just like yeah I'm gonna just write all this stuff down you know whenever I go through something really upsetting or you know horrible then I'm just oh well that's terrible but I'm gonna get some damn good poetry out of it (laughs) um or like with comedy it's very much the feeling of oh this sucked but god damn the comedy writes itself doesn't it Mm. (laughs) I think sort of persona stuff wise I've not really thought a huge amount about that um possibly because of the whole autism thing like I'm more or less constantly masking out and about so I'm only really discovering these days now I'm consciously unmasking how to recognize where I end and mask begins or if there actually is that sharp delineation or whether it's a you know a big fluid space like everything else Mm -hmm. right okay and drag is very much like a sort of recent beginning again at the moment, which is really fun. Like the drag character is not fully fleshed out in any way, shape or form, but I'm really enjoying just messing about and seeing how it comes along. 
Mm, which is the beauty of of writing as well, isn't it? You know, kind of you do you do draft and, and, and mess about so much to get to that place where you're like, right, yeah, I feel like I've crystallized what I'm trying to to get at and, and get onto the page. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like there's so much freedom, I think, in uh like in just going, I've gotta get it down. Whatever it is, I'm just gonna get it done and then I'll come back and edit it. So you can just, you know, faff about, write whatever you want. You can write thousands of words of guff or you can write one really good nugget that really needs expanding. Like, it's very freeing to be able to just let things be imperfect and and work on them later. Because mm, mm. otherwise you never get anything done, or I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, there's the stories of writers, which I definitely wouldn't recommend to listeners listening right now, of... People like Charles Bukowski, who I'm a big fan of, you know, writing drunk and editing sober. I mean, if he was ever sober, that's probably that's up for debate. But, <laughs> but it is that sense of, you know, of of what you're seeking by, by you know, by getting to that state of inebriation is just that release and just letting go and just letting stuff come out of you. And then when you are in, in, a, in, a, in a space and accessing that different part of yourself, which is kind of the editor, the sort of the critical part, be able to... Mm go right let's piece this together into something um which is more closely resembling what i would want from a finished piece yeah i mean i think for me i think a lot of the practice of writing and letting go of that inner perfectionist has become easier the more i try to let go of that perfectionist in the everyday so i started learning to play the guitar a few years ago and i never really progressed particularly far you know i can strum some chords while i'm singing basically Mm. and at first, I would not do that in front of anyone because I was like, oh, I'm not good enough to do it in front of people. And then I was like, well, actually, you know, I know lots of people who just pick it up and kind of noodle on it in the middle of social situations because it's something to do. And actually, it's OK to be in that uh, work in progress stage because we are constantly in that. Whether we feel that we've crossed some artificial threshold of good enough to present this in front of people or to do it around people or not we're still always going to be learning and growing and we're never going to consider ourselves as good as we want to be because we always get to the point where we thought we wanted to get to, but by then we're looking at the next one. Mm -hmm. And with writing, it's very much the same. It's the just like, okay, just let go of it having to be right. You need to get through this scene to get to this, to the bit that you're currently thinking of that's in your head. Okay, go for that and then go back and you probably cut that scene out anyway because you didn't enjoy writing it and you're not enjoying reading it back. Mm -hmm. But it got you there. And being able to sort of have that looseness of and kind of bravery to be able to go, yep, I did this and it's crap. <laughs> and really be proud of the fact that you did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because if you if if you can't get to that place of of freedom, knowing full well that some crap is going to come, you know, because um, the, the brain is not a, a, a pristine, um, completely... Uh, clear um, system of, of pipes just funneling brilliant ideas. It's it's a, it's a it's a big mess of things in there. It, it's gonna it's gonna produce some crap. You know, it's it's inevitable. Um, but but like the, the 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 freedom and the joy of just acknowledging that means that you are going to be more likely to, with your next idea, come up with something that's really quite special. Yeah, that and a friend of mine a few years ago um, was oh yeah I mentioned fan fiction earlier. They they were writing fan fiction and they said. You know, I've realized no writing is ever wasted. Whenever I think about the fact that I'm writing fanfic and I should be writing my original stuff and all of this, I remind myself that 
this is all practice. Every bit of writing I do of any kind is practice and is me getting better. So there's no such thing as wasted. And that was just like, whoa. Mm. <laughs> wow, that's changed my life, friend. <laughs> So I was reading through your collection of short stories, um, genre fluid, and um, I was really, I was really drawn to the story Molly. Um, do you recall really what bad. I'm talking I about? Which one's one <laughs> Molly? It's the second one in the um, in the collection. Some reason it's completely slipped my mind. I'll give. I'll give. I will um, talk some. I'll talk some content to it. Um, maybe it'll come back. Um, but I feel this. The story Molly speaks really wonderfully to that um, the queer experience of self discovery that we've been talking about a bit because um, it's a story of of someone who, through some kind of like a quirk of like magical fate, um, is invisible to society and the people in, in 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 their lives and builds up this relationship with um with um someone who kind of becomes uh, a romantic partner who slowly kind of comes to see them and it's about it's just so rich because it, it, it i think it sets up really wonderfully um through this like like mythic fairy tale device um that sense of of constantly having to go through the process of like seeing yourself and being seen and 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 sort of fighting for that in a way and not and not kind of disappearing into the background and navigating that in society navigating that with loved ones and relationships i feel like it's really appropriate that that's the one that i forgot was in this collection because <laughs> it's all about forgetting this one, the person you wrote wow, it so perfectly I, that you I forgot it to as magic well. myself out of remembering the character wow i'm so sorry character. maybe you are maybe you are the character Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I really enjoyed writing that one, actually. It was, um, I don't even, I can't even remember really what it went into writing that one, because I wrote that when I was probably about 20, I think. Uh, so almost a decade ago now. And um, that was such a, like, it was such a fun device to play with, the idea that this character could be forgotten, basically, at a moment's notice. And uh, the trying to write a romance that wasn't that wasn't creepy with that mm. basically um because i didn't want it to turn into just this like weird loner stalker immortal <laughs> basically i wanted it to be um like a tender and very um very much wanted relationship between the two characters even with that difficulty and that was a really fun thing to play with beautiful beautiful I think that um, that transitions quite nicely into a question. So we're going to pass you over now to Carla Hall, she, they, who is a writer and part of the People's Pride Southampton team on the social media side, who is going to ask a couple of questions. Psst. My name is Carla Hall and I'm a writer and I'm part of the charity People's Pride Southampton. We've just been bringing you queer joy all summer. Okay, so my first question is when we have queer fiction, I think primarily I see it in YA, but that's what I read and that's what I write. Um, how do you feel when the characters, their sole 
identity is the, their sexuality or their gender do you think that uh it's it's necessary and it's needed as like a coming out uh or do you think that it kind of takes away from just the integrity of the character oh not at all it i no, would never say it takes away from anything to be honest um but uh i think for me it's very much a i have when I first read a book about a gender fluid character and then I first read a book about a binary trans character and I've not read a huge number of uh, like young adult specifically queer stories other than like um, uh, graphic novels and things. So Heartstopper and that sure. sort of thing. Um, but the first time I did, it was just like, wow, oh my God, someone's actually writing about this. It's 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 incredible and it was such a huge thing and um particularly being a little bit younger this was a few years ago um that was that was you know it was huge and obviously you know at the time that was really new that that just you know that didn't happen you know if you went to a queer bookshop you could find stuff like this maybe or if you went to you know like a, a an older more established but not chain bookstore and it had like the queer section which would have, you know, a lot more stuff than maybe Waterstones would have done at the time, then you might find stuff like that. But you'd have to really go looking for it. Um, and I think the fact that that now exists is huge. Like Heartstopper, for example, like we said earlier, that's sure. like reading that and uh, and watching the show as well. Even now, it's just like, oh, my God, I had to sit with it for several days afterwards. Just like, it's wonderful that this exists now. Where was this for us? <laughs> Which I think is quite a like common experience. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted that these stories exist and are being told. Um, personally, I don't really tend to write stories where the focus is entirely on the uh, queerness of the character as like because I don't really tend to write romance, so it doesn't really focus on sexuality so much. Like I like I like romance as a thread in a sure. story that I'm writing, but it's not um, not generally what I focus on. Um, but I would like to try writing that more, I think, because it would be a good challenge. Um, and uh, I think I really enjoy reading stories where the queerness of the characters is just a part of their lives without it having to be the main focus. Like, I think uh, it's wonderful that we now have this queer representation in mm -hmm. stories, in books, in movies, in TV shows, and that's that's huge. And that, that is, there, is, there is no negative, there is no but to that. That's just amazing. And I really want to see, uh, like, queerness break containment <laughs> in fiction. So we can, you know, I can pick, go into the bookstore, I can go to the sci-fi section, I can pick up, like, a space opera. I don't know why I pick up space opera. I don't <laughs> read them, but I'll pick up a space opera for fun. And I open it, and it is just a fully diverse cast of, you know, queer people, disabled people, neurodivergent people, BIPOC people. It just, without it being listed as such specifically like it would be wonderful to get to a point where that is just so normal mm -hmm. and i think you know we're not really there yet so it makes sense that a lot of the stories like that are a lot more underground i suppose like you know i hear about books are like this quite a lot through like you know friends and things it's quite like word of mouth but through you know major publishers and that is very much on the if it's queer, it's got to be focused on the coming out and the romance and the coming of age. And, you know, that's great, but there's more to our lives than our than our awkward love lives and our, like, difficult coming of age, coming out stories. And I think they're wonderful that they're being told and let's also tell loads more stuff because, you know, cis people get, like, the full spectrum. 
and straight people get the full spectrum. Like, you know, if you're if you're both and particularly obviously if you're white and, you know, not disabled, all of those things, mm. then you have like, I can I I can walk to a bookstore and I can grab almost every book off the shelf for you. <laughs> um, so give us more books that are like, you know, just just have characters in them who don't just fit that mold. Yeah, I think that's also the power of using queer because it does really oh it's like power and protection it's like i'm part of this community but i'm also kind of telling you you don't need to ask me which part we we are all one and i think maybe using queer when we talk about queer fiction allows you to have all of these different conversations without it being like this massive display of a letter yeah i mean i'm I've, I've become a bit of a snob about it these days like i won't buy a book um unless it's one that i've specifically decided i need to read either either for research or because i want to educate myself on something uh then i won't buy a book just to read like a fiction book unless it has queer characters of some kind and that is that is open it can be you know it could just be gay characters it could be trans characters it could be a bisexual character. Oh no, God! I just suddenly remembered a book I read recently that was awful, and I'm not going to name it because that's not what I want to do right now. But it's just it wanted all the queer rep with none of the actual like them being queer in it. So that was a bit sad. But for the most part, it's really, really making my reading experience great. I read an amazing book called All the White Spaces by Ali Wilkes recently, which is like a Antarctic polar exploration book that is also a horror book and the main character is a trans guy it's oh it's so that sounds incredible that does lead me to my next question about perfectionism Mm. as a queer writer uh we spoke a little bit about the characters and whether their sexual identities should be the the core trait but how do you find creating the worlds in in that queer sphere um so i think earlier when we were talking about it it was sort of to do with more along the lines of like representation of like those characters is that the same question yes yeah so it's like a i think i think about it a lot but i think we all do uh we want to make sure that our books appeal to the people we want them to appeal to and at the same time there is infinite variation in the queer experience so what i write that is empowering for me will not necessarily be empowering for the other trans mask non-binary person right next to me <laughs> or you know for or other people and it will call to you know to other people still um so one thing i wrote recently was that etchesky story about the um the so basically what happens in it is it starts out with like this ritual of the villager trying they do like a, a ritual every year to keep the uh, the water horses away and keep their people safe and ensure good you know good bounty from the sea for the rest of the year and that sort of thing um so all you know the traditional stuff that you do like your village ritual for basically mm. and um the main character she essentially winds up uh just she's so pissed off with this with living in this place um where she's just completely not understood she is uh treated very badly because you know because what what we would say now she's trans but she doesn't necessarily know the words for that she doesn't have the words for that they wouldn't necessarily exist in this time or space and she's having a very hard time there she is 
you know, she has a moment where she just kind of freaks out and she does her own ritual on the beach, being like, actually, screw it, come here. Like, come and get me, I'm, I'm done with this. And um, they're wreckers in this village, so they wreck a ship um, because they get some supplies and stuff and they go and, you know, they bring the sailors back to the village and one of the sailors shows an interest in her and the encounter turns south and then this sort of water horse monster basically comes and eats him and either eats her or takes her away to the sea, depending on what the end of the story is. And so, you know, in some ways, I think some people could read that as a... Like, oh, no, trans people are going to eat cis people kind of thing. Or it could be a, oh, yeah, actually, we're beautiful and sexy and fierce and incredible and a force of nature. Like, mm. depending on what, how you respond to those themes, basically. So it, so. like, challenges what writing for queer joy means for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as, like, perfect perfect writing that will appeal to anybody everybody mm. and there's never going to be perfect queer representation there's never going to be perfect queer writing either and actually I think a lot of what really matters is that you are coming at it from a place of like what is working for you with this like you know I've read uh like books about trans with trans characters by like cis people who didn't really quite get it and it's been really obvious in the writing and then I've read ones where at the end I've been like wow, you're cisgender and heterosexual and you wrote this so well. Are you sure? <laughs> and, like, you know, it's it's a lot of it just has to come from that place of, you know, learning and understanding, I think, and a lot of the time just writing what we ourselves experience or what we want to see ourselves. Like, I want to see more, like, weird folk tales where trans people are forces of nature that eat people. Great, cool. Some people would like to read more stories where, you know, I don't know, trans people are like into space, interstellar entities. Great, cool, fab. Yeah, well, you'll definitely have a market for that, so that sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So I want to talk about the, the subject of joy specifically and um, it, it, where does that kind of like sit with you as a, as, as a concept and like um, what, does it, what does it mean to you when you think of joy? I think that's changed for me a lot over the last few years. Like, I think it has for a lot of us with lockdown and COVID and, you know, we've had to do a lot of re-examining. Um, for me, I think these days it's very much just peacefulness it, within myself and with the people I'm with. Like, as, like I said earlier, I feel like it's people with whom I can sit with a quiet heart mm. and contentment in myself and the people I'm around. And, um, like, you know, obviously the... There needs to still be occasionally the, you know, parties and raving and dancing and kissing people and all that stuff. And that's all great. And that's still very much part of it. And also, yeah, just peaceful heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. I love that. And I think that speaks a lot to what this this podcast series, I suppose, is, is focusing on and, and, and giving a bit of a voice and a platform for it. Is that more quiet? form of of, of of queerness you know because we all know we know about pride month and we love pride month um um but of course um as you were talking about uh with carla there's you know there's there's not just like uh, queer as a kind of you know insert block story here there's there's all different manner of, of experiences and, and you know and, and quiet queerness is, is very much that even though society may not necessarily think of it as the first as the first port of call yeah, like you know, like we were saying earlier about the the space of joy being where you cannot be defined by defiance, mm -hmm. where you can just be you and be happy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. 
I um I came across this interesting um, uh, quote that I wanted to share. It might, it might be a bit of a might be a bit of a, a stretch in terms of kind of applying to this conversation, but um, I picked up a book uh, called Chatter uh, by Ethan Cross, which is um, he's like a sort of a specialist basically in kind of your internal voice and kind of examining that. And um, I was I picked it up because I've um, uh, over the years I've suffered a lot with like, like anxiety, social anxiety. And I'm all up for any way of, um, you know, kind of finding little tips and different perspectives on, you know, how to control that. And of course, it's, you know, your internal voice is also a very important thing for your creativity. Um, and there was something that really struck me um, reading um, the first part of the book, which was, it turns out that having imaginary friends may spur internal speech in children. In fact, emerging research suggests that imaginary play promotes self-control among many other desirable qualities such as creative thinking, confidence, and good communication. And I was, I was really struck by that because I thought like, well, sort of having an imaginary friend, it's a bit like sitting down to write, you know, kind of like and going and taking yourself into a, into a different world entirely and, and kind of having that inner dialogue with, your, with yourself and kind of, you know, seeing yourself come out of the page and being like, oh, you know, myself i want to say this to myself you know it, i think first and foremost writing is is a sort of a dialogue with 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 the self and um i'm just kind of interested in like you know what kind of role you feel like kind of writing has, has played for you o over the years and like kind of um whether you feel kind of thinking about you know that kind of that that, that younger self um uh, like kind of what your relationship is with your, your younger self now kind of like and how that's kind of play that through your writing you know like looking back at stuff you wrote when you were younger and and seeing kind of you know who you used to be and how far you've come I think for me writing like very much began as just I loved stories so I love I learned to read very young and I loved the storyteller videos and I loved hearing uh, like my mom's always been a great storyteller and uh, just of the things that she so my dad dad was very young my mum used to tell us a lot of stories of my dad and a lot of stories about uh, the stuff they'd get up to and the stuff that they and their friends would all get up to, which is a lot of hijinks. And um, they were always so entertaining. Like Rosie and I would always be like, oh, tell us another story about this this person or this person or, you know, or our dad. And um, I was just very much surrounded by that, like sharing, sharing experiences and storytelling uh, sort of vibe, I think. So... Writing for me very much was a natural sort of progression on that. Like I started writing, I found my um, I found my first uh, like book I wrote when I was a kid. Uh, I think I must have been about seven or eight, and it's it's still stuff I enjoy now. Like it was like you know it was just a couple of kids going on an adventure and like finding a dragon and stuff. And like I'm still really into fantasy and sci-fi, and it's funny seeing that sort of thread run through it. Um, and it's, I think, writing has become a lot more of a, like it's it's always been because it's fun to tell stories, and I really enjoy that bit of it. And then now it's also become very much, and I want to sort of talk about uh, what's happening in the world at the moment. Because, um, you know, we're sort of witnessing and surviving this terrifying descent into fascism. Um, and we are surviving this uh, attack on a lot of us, like, you know, particularly being a trans person at the moment, you're, you know, it's, it's pretty dire. 
Um, whether that's from, you know, the like demonization of trans people in the media or the attacks on the government or just dealing with people in the everyday life. And, you know, that's that's obviously that's not even ex that's not exclusive either. Like uh, one of the groups that come to mind very much is migrants. They're hugely under attack by the government and the media as well. Um, and in a very direct way. Um, and it's. I think a lot of what I want to write these days and what I want to talk about is solidarity between people and people fighting together and loving each other fiercely and protectively. Mm. Um, and yeah, having that like really, I think, yeah, probably fierce is probably the right word. I, I believe in that like fierce dedication and love for each other that drives us to, to, you know, to stand by and with and for each other. And that's what I want to, that's what I want to write these days. So I think the role of writing is, has, you know, it's still very much because it's fun. Um, it's also these days a lot more because, well, what do I want to see more of in the world? Mm. What do I want to write? What do I, what, what do I want to read? What do I want to see in the world? And okay, right. So why don't I just write about that then? Like, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That sense of if, if you can't see yourself being represented, then you know, that's an invitation to represent yourself. Yeah. I suppose in a lot of ways. And, um, I think, I suppose in a lot of ways, writing has always kind of been writing what I want the world to be like or what would be fun to explore, one or the other or both. And so, and, you know, it's not as pure as that. It's not like, you know, oh, I definitely want the world to be, you know, all like, you know, dragons and volcanoes and all of that sort of thing. But, like, you know, that can be a part of it. Um and I think these days just that's shifted a bit. Like a while ago I wrote, um, I don't know, I actually did write a romance story. I wrote a romance story set in a community garden. Mm. And it was during lockdown. It was just because I really wanted to, I was really enjoying gardening and I really wanted to um, write a story that was about that whole like solar punk idea of, it was like in a sort of, not really post-apocalyptic, but it was it was just the inevitable decline of our current dystopia basically. Mm and people having to learn to deal with the climate crisis in a lot of different ways and yeah just that was that was really fun because that was a lot of you know I don't necessarily want to see that be the world but I want mm. to see people being like that toward each other mm. and putting these things into effect now mm. um yeah I've been very inspired by the idea of solar punk recently <laughs> mm -hmm. what how, how would you term solar punk I mean that's not a, a term I've come across before how, how would you describe solar punk so solar punk is, um, so think about post-apocalyptic kind of, it's that but hopeful. Um, it's green, it's growing, it's permaculture, it's community, it's people working together instead of that whole, you know, like the American post-apocalyptic genre where it's all like one man against the world. It's the opposite of that. It's the okay. communal, loving, everybody working together for the betterment of, of each other and yeah, doing it in a way that is attuned to nature. Mm. So Mad Max with communal water taps. <laughs> it's like how I can imagine. So Mad Max Fury Road is one of my favourite movies. Um, and at the end of it, when, you know, when the women have all gone back and they've kind of taken over the place, it's kind of how that could probably become, maybe. Mm. That, that, mm -hmm. that, I can imagine that becoming a nice solar punk, like, yeah, mm. space. Mm. <laughs> Eventually, in time, obviously, at the at that point, it's still pretty dire, but, mm. you know, there's hope. 
Mm-hmm. That's a lot of what solar punk is, I think. It's, oh yeah, the climate's collapsing. Everything's going to absolutely terribly. Let's uh, let's work together and hope and do our mm. best. Yeah, I love that. And you're sort of introducing that conversation in uh, the context of something that to me on on on, on the on the um, surface sounds quite whimsical, like a, a love story in a community garden. You know, that sounds like an episode of it, insert um, Twee 70 sitcom here, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I, I love, I love, I love that because I think one of the real binds as, um, you know, someone who wants to write about climate change and, you know, um, and, and also issues within society is it's really hard, I think, to engage people um, at all with those things, um, you know, uh, of course, absolutely in like kind of stories and storytelling. And um, I'm really inspired by people um, who can take a really important issue and kind of, you know, shroud it within a, a kind of, I suppose, a more like lighthearted, joyful context, but still get the message across. And kind yeah. of that sounds like the, the space you're kind of working in at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a lot of where I really want to be sort of focusing with my longer form writing. Like with the with the shorter stuff, I'm, I'm really excited about this like trans mythology, trans folktale series I'm going to be hopefully putting out in the next little while. But with the longer form stuff, I definitely want to be trying to go for a lot more of that sort of, like, you know, the the quote, I can't remember who said it, the don't write about the horrors of war, write about, I think it's like a, a child sock on the road in front of a bombed out house or something like that. It's making the big small because you, you can't write poetry about the horrors of war, but you can write poetry about this one image mm. that then says everything that needs to be said about the horrors of war mm. so with um with things like the love story in the community garden it's very much a feeling of how do we take all of this huge stuff that we can't really comprehend like mm. the climate crisis we all know it's there we all know the you know sea levels are rising the temperature's going up we know that there's flooding in mozambique we know this that and the other we know that you know the weather patterns are changing but we can't really grasp it because we are just people that we are small small creatures at the end of the day and so how can we write about these things in a way that's urgent but human um and that was something i really enjoyed with that because it's kind of a way of bringing all of the political down into something small and personal personal that can be yeah so people say the personal is political like make the political personal as well i think Mm, absolutely oh yeah i really i really heartily agree and i think that, that 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 um line you were quoting about kind of you know taking the bigger making it small and relatable is 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 re- a really wonderful way i think to um to get your message across it really made me uh, think of um uh one of my favorite artists and writers is uh is the is a singer and songwriter tom waits and his songs kind of read like short poems uh films and this is song there's this song called soldiers things and he's just listing what kind of reads like a a shopping list really or like a, a list of things you might get, uh, go and get a car boot sale you know like kind of mm. davenports which is a type of shoe i believe and, and kettle drums and uh, kettle drums and uh swallowtail coats things like all this all this um uh all this clock needs is like is you know is a bit of a bit of attention or all, all, all this light needs is a fuse and it's talking about all the things that um a wife is selling that uh, from the husband that never came home from war mm. It like kind of never mentions that at all, but you just get this this really rich story and sense of the sort of the tragedy and and and, and the enormity of war in in this kind of just casual representation of things that are for sale. And it's just such a 
over overwhelmingly powerful device you know i mm. think yeah hugely because it gives you that um it makes it something that you could be dealing with in a lot of ways i think that's a huge thing that i think particularly when it comes to stuff like death and loss people really don't if they've not gone through it themselves they don't really know what that could be like something like that is a i mean that's such a huge part of loss is then having to go through their stuff and deal with do does the family want it do you want it does this friend want it and what happens to all the stuff that nobody wants, all the stuff that everyone wants? Um, and how do you all process going through somebody you love's belongings as a thing that, you know, they, they should be doing this, they should be using these things, what, what's going on here? Mm. And processing that, like, sort of lack of comprehension around it. And then you extrapolate further, like you, you kind of zoom back further, and then it's, oh, this is en masse, this is a whole nation a whole country this is a whole world sort of thing so it's yeah mm. a really good way to just like g yeah get it get to the heart of something get to the feelings in it mm. Mm, absolutely and often the best stories are told without really knowing kind of what it is actually you know that is kind of been talked about you know as a kind of that sense of and uh, I, I think why and, and it obviously comes up a lot in your writing why you know kind of fairy tales and dystopia can uh, and and utopia as well can be so powerful is it's like it's taking you far enough away from your own life that it feels safe distance mm. but then you can also sort of look at yourself in the reflection from that world and and and, and see a bit of yourself and go ah oh, i see where we i could change or i see the problems here and i think you know certainly talking about things like climate change and also like social justice around um around issues of of, of queerness i think that's really really valuable and a, and a really rich tool to be working with mm. yeah i mean i think one thing that's sort of it's a funny balance uh because we were talking about representation earlier and um the importance of sort of of that but also uh i think there's historically there's been a lot of writing where people have written a sci-fi or a fantasy or an alternate universe of some kind where they've gone for a metaphor so um marvel x-men um mutants so they can be a metaphor for um uh, for jewish people for queer people for black people for disabled people depending on the mutant and yet so many people are diehard fans of it and have completely fallen down a right-wing rabbit hole because they've missed that mm. they've not gone oh what what is this actually about they've just seen this almost representation and like you know align themselves with the characters and then completely miss the mark mm. and i think that's where representation directly in these kinds of worlds comes in in, in to, into its own really importantly um because a lot of people, you know, we're like, you know, we'll all read stuff like this and go, oh yeah, that that sounds familiar. That that's you know, that's like me, or that's like my friend, or that could be, you know, oh wow, you know, like it, it opens your eyes to different people's experiences and things. And then you get some people who they will not get it unless they're hit over the head with it. So <laughs> it's really important to have that brazen representation as much as it is to have the like the metaphorical stuff. And I think that's 
it's so powerful to have them both in the same space. I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoy writing like sci-fi and dystopia and fantasy stuff because it's like, oh, I get to play with this in loads of ways. Mm. Absolutely. It gives you a lot of permission as a writer, doesn't it, to really just be as, as big and as bold or as or as small and as subtle as you want. Mm, yeah, massively. Like, you know, I can hit people over the head with it if I really want to in a moment and then go back into it being a lot more subtle and changed into something else. Like, great fun. I think I didn't think about it much when I was younger again, uh, but over the years, queer has become a really important phrase for me, partly for its um, its determined ambiguity. Like, I don't want to have to go into all the nuances and ins and outs of my identity and my interests and my romance and all of that stuff with everybody I meet. It's just a waste of my time, to be honest. Mm. Um, and often theirs at the end of the day. Um, and if it becomes relevant, we can talk about it. But so it's partly that, you know, that determined ambiguity. But actually, I had a conversation with a friend um, last year, I think, about the word queer as opposed to and identifying as queer as opposed to LGBT and or not really opposed, but as a sim similar but slightly separate mm. sort of angle, because we were both very much on the vibe of queer as a political identity. Mm. It's a statement. When you say you're LGBT, it's just saying at least to the two of us, this is not for not to everybody at all. Um, and however everybody wants to define themselves is great. Um, but for the two of us, we very much bonded on the idea that we chose queer as our like word because it's radically inclusive, it's radically accepting. It's going, I refuse to amputate the weird parts of me, of you, of us, in order to try to assimilate into the cishet majority society because it doesn't work like the whole you know trying to um appear palatable to you know to lawmakers or to people in the government doesn't actually get you anywhere at the end of the day it gives you a veneer of rights and then underneath it there is everybody else that you've pulled the ladder up for and queer is very much that refusal to play into that game because mm. the, if there's just that thin veneer of rights then at any moment it can be decided that actually, no, you're still too weird, you and your picket fence or, you know, you and your three dogs or whatever. So it's that idea. None, it's the kind of the tying in of lots of different things and lots of different, you know, phrases of solidarity, I suppose, you know, the idea that none are free until all are free. An injury to one is an injury to all. And we've all got to work together because the same people who hate us mm. for being, you know, the weird queer freak ones are going to hate people who are in more along the assimilationist vibes or who aren't quite in that like you know more bizarre space and there's always going to be somebody weirder than us that they're going to mm. hate just as much and we might as well all link arms and stand together mm. i mean i love that image for one um and uh it's um yeah you're so, you're so right and you speak so eloquently about the the sort of the the, the the dichotomy of the situation of you know of of being your authentic self but then the sort of the pressure to adhere to a society and, and the sense of trying to feel safe within it um there's a there's a play um there's a play that i that i read uh, about a year ago which um which is about the aids crisis in the 80s in new york it's called the normal heart and it it uh, set out really um sort of just astonishingly clearly the the the, the bind that that particular community at that time but then i think also more broadly um i think the queer community ongoing um mm. has to kind of face which is how do we balance you know kind of advocating for the the 
the rights and the freedom and the support that we that we need, while also fitting in with a society that is is causing us uh, or is is denying those things for us. Like the central character is is running this um, this organisation that's trying to basically raise political awareness of the campaign and get get support, and so that's a very loud position. And he's also kind of saying, until until we figure out what's going on, maybe we shouldn't be having you know sexual relationships with each other. And then the kind of the other people who are involved are very much it's kind of just kind of keep keep things you know kind of we don't want to be too loud about this you know let's just kind of keep our private lives to ourselves and carry on as normal, and uh, and the the sort of the person who's leading this group is so torn because he said I don't want to deny who you are and and the freedom you fought for in your own way but also we really need help we need people to learn about this and I just thought it spoke so it spoke so beautifully and so so heartbreakingly to to that to that to that bind that you were speaking about yeah i mean i think at the end of the day it's always going to be a double bind because there is always going to be that pressure from above trying to make us either disappear or fit into a very niche box and it's never going to that's never going to be possible to reconcile until everything has changed so you know there's me on my like vive la revolution little <laughs> sideline but um yeah, it's it's really impossible, I think, to reconcile those two things until until the whole system has been changed and that pressure is no longer there because both of those are survival strategies. They're not living. Psst. I kind of thinking about that relationship uh, we talked about earlier with like your kind of younger self as a writer and how you've grown um, and also thinking about, you know, kind of opportunities you would have like uh liked to have had when you were uh kind of a younger queer person that may be more kind of readily available now is there any like a sort of um advice or things you want to point people in the directions of um you know young queer writers who might be listening to this i think really don't underestimate your writing like send it off to magazines to zines to competitions just get it out there like recently a lot of what I've been doing is just sitting down slamming out a poem and then submitting it to a magazine because you know it's taking an hour of my time and it's enjoyable and it's extra writing practice and maybe I'll get a performable poem out of it maybe I'll get a printable poem out of it maybe it will get published maybe it won't but hey it's you know it's a good way to keep in practice and the more of them that get accepted the more I'm realizing oh yeah actually this like I can do this and that's a really good sort of boost to have. Um, and yeah, definitely don't underestimate your writing. And I think the one of the biggest things for me, like I was thinking about like what advice I would give to like my like younger writer self. And I realized that actually I probably wouldn't give myself much writing advice because I think my, my all of my progress the whole way through has been integral to who I am now. But I would say go wider than that like if I'd started thinking a lot more about say about political stuff or getting more involved in um like union stuff when I was younger or any of that then that would have hugely changed my writing for the better from a much younger age and because I had no idea really what I was doing uh like in my head politically or what it is I wanted to really say or you know, I didn't really know a huge number of people and was quite like isolated in a lot of ways. That limited me in some ways in terms of what it was I wanted to write about. So like I said about the gaping hole in Body Hacker, it's a lot of it is just going out and getting experience and 
meeting people and you know getting the bus to nearby towns and finding out about stuff in your local area like one thing I do these days is I'll go on Facebook events and just look up local events in towns that I've not been to before that I'm in for the day and I found all sorts of stuff just through doing that like whittling classes and yeah all sorts and um yeah just getting out and doing a lot of doing a lot of stuff with a lot of people it'll it'll level up your writing like nothing else because apart from anything else you'll get a really good handle on how loads of different people talk mm. and um yeah if you're if you're struggling with something in your writing uh try out that format so whether it's um so dialogue if you're struggling with dialogue read loads of plays write a play if you're struggling with uh your descriptions write loads of imagery heavy poetry if you're struggling with um, like character realism, go and talk to loads of people and write about the people that you meet. Like, don't necessarily, you know, write a story about you know Bob that you met down the pub and then <laughs> then uh, like you know send it to a, a publisher without asking them. But you know, <laughs> like yeah, just just look at what it is that you feel you're struggling with and then really dive into that. Look for whatever writing format might. Uh, rely on that above all else and practice that mm. that's fantastic that's fantastic thanks so much for sharing for that and also I think to add like if you're not if you're not the kind of person who feels comfortable going up and like having chats with people you know, just listen to conversations on the bus or on the train just and just drop. yeah just very sneakily take notes you know like yeah. um, that is the best way to form dialogue I think dialogue sometimes you can really overwrite it without really knowing where you're doing it certainly my journey here with dialogue has been that i've always struggled to write dialogue and i think i it kind of clicked uh being more kind of i guess real when you know i kind of remembered how conversations actually go you know which which are full of kind of um as i said just in there you know they're full of like little kind of noises and hesitations and stutters and um, and they're not as quite as as put together as 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 sometimes you would always like them to be as as a, as a writer and you know obviously it depends on your your, your style um you may want to go for that kind of like i suppose like classic form of dialogue which is really you know like really refined and really together or you might want to go for stuff that feels more kind of realistic um um you know there's there's there's, there's no right way to write it but the, obviously the best source material if you're struggling is just going out and listening to people yeah i mean one th one of the best bits of advice i got given because i've i've always had like dialogue as one of my like biggest strengths with my writing and part of that is because I studied script writing but before that as a teenager I think a lot of it was from my English teacher when I was probably about 13 or 14 saying don't make your characters too clever they don't know what they're going to say before they say it any more than you do don't make them too clever and all of a sudden it was just like oh yeah they're they're idiots too <laughs> basically <laughs> um and that really helped and also not being afraid to use like um ah and stuff like that like don't cut that out entirely obviously don't rely on it unless it's a specific you know trait of that character but include it like we're non-verbal creatures as much as we are verbal creatures more so mm. we make a lot of noise when we're talking that is not words <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely and what you were talking about there i think you know like going out and experiencing different different events and like, and like sharing your writing with other people like I think you know there's that phrase it takes a village to raise a child but you know I think to, to form a creative voice you know it takes like a choir a chorus you know of mm. just like seeing where you fit in with everybody else and what makes you you and um certainly the the greatest asset to, for you you as a writer which I, I think I've learned with with hard experience trying to write as if um you know 
listening to too much David Bowie and being like, oh, I, w- I want to, or listening to too much of anybody and being like, oh, I really want to write like like them and then listening, reading somebody else, go, oh, I want to write like them. You could spend so much time, you know, wasting trying to be your own imitation of your favorite writer. And, and that's a really great place to start. I think a good piece of advice is like I've heard is, you know, write like your favorite writer, but that's like not your end goal. That's kind of, you know, that's like a stepping stone to ease you into finding your own, your own voice and, and knowing that that is your greatest asset is whatever makes you, you. And um, certainly from a queer perspective, you've got a wonderful abundance of, of things that kind of make you uniquely yourself. Mm, yeah. And also, you know what they are or you're in the process of working it out and you're going to work it out a lot faster than someone not going through that process. So, you know, use that, rely on that. You, you're great. Trust yourself. So talk to me about your anthology you're putting together at the moment, which, which is, I believe, a sort of like an amalgamation of trans fairy tales. Mm, yeah, so I'm uh, starting at the moment. I've written, written a couple of the stories for it and I'm now, like, working on a few more. Um, I'm going to be writing a collection of trans folk tales, basically. So there'll be some myths, there'll be some fairy tales, but the main thing I really want to be focusing on is uh, niche folk tales because that's what I really love is the um, the stuff that is really location specific and is tied to a place. So I've been really enjoying finding lots more uh, lesser known Dorset folklore recently, um, including the um, the woman who turns into a hare because uh, the story of that is. Uh, there was a man who, whenever the hunt came and wanted to, you know, wanted to go and hunt a hare, they'd go to this man, they'd pay him a gold crown, and he would always find them a hare every single time, but they'd never catch it. And one day they set an ambush outside his house, and um, the hare runs back into his house, turns back into his wife. And it turns out that he's been getting her to turn into a hare to be chased by the, the hunt, uh, so that they then have money for food, basically. And, you know, she always just makes it back in time. And that's what I really want to be playing around with. But I think we live in, like, as I said earlier about the the terrifying descent into fascism, we live in a very scary time. And whether that's because of the climate crisis, whether that's because of the political crisis, whether that's because of what's going on in our personal lives, it's a it's a hard time all round. And um, and also obviously, you know, with the plague going around and stuff like that, um, I think it's a time that is in dire need of. Uh, folk tale, fairy tale, and myth, because I'm I'm a firm believer that the two deepest human urges are to share food and share stories, because all of us do it in, in some form, whatever form that is. And I think it's also uh, so. I listened to um, Blind Boy podcast, and uh, a while ago he was talking about mythology and it being um, tying people into a sense of place which it absolutely does. And that's one of the reasons I love the like niche local folklore mm. stuff, because also there are stories that will go, they'll just be gone if people don't write about them mm. um, or people don't go out and listen to them and record them. Like folklorists are, they're demigods as far as I'm concerned. I love folklorists. Um, they go out and they, you know, record stories that are just going to be lost forever otherwise. Um, and I think, people are very disconnected from nature and from their environment. And when I say their environment, I don't mean like the environment of the whole planet in the way that we talk about it with like green activism. I mean, their environment in which they live. Mm. So, you know, for me, that's, you know, the new forest and the Purbex and the beach and all of that area um, and the rivers. And 
you know, a lot of us are very deeply disconnected from nature. And I think it's a very um, disheartening and depressing thing. You know, people go, oh, you know, it's good for you to have green spaces. Well, it's because that's where we come from. <laughs> that's our actual <laughs> home uh, that we're talking about there. And I think we need to really get that connection up a lot more for our own mental health and physical health and also for the health of the planet. So, you know, let's tie that in and, you know, think more about our own connections to the place around us because, you know, it's really important and it's fun. Like, that's always got to be a sense of fun in things, I think. And one of the reasons I want to write this trans mythology, trans folktale series is it's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Like, I love writing about trans people, I love writing about queer people, I love folk tales, fairy tales and myths, and it's just, oh yeah, I could just write something that appeals to all of that and is really fun. Because there are lots of lost queer myths, or not lost, but, you know, we've been denied this cultural history, right, of our of our queer myths and our queer fairy tales, which there are loads of them, whether, you know, whether we take from the abundance of gay that is Greece, or whether we take... Um, <laughs> You know, whether we go for Odin and Loki's, both of them very gender-fluid characters, uh, or gods, um, or, you know, whether we go, like, for uh, the Fisher King's child in Arthurian mythology. Like, there's there's so much queerness that is in this tapestry of myth, and we've just been denied those threads that belong to us. So I think it's really important for us to be, you know, start weaving with those again. So it's the mix of... Yeah, let's uh, let's get ourselves tied back into the world around us, and also let's claim our cultural heritage with that, um, because it has been, you know, hidden in a lot of ways. Um, and let's not just stop there. Let's create new stuff, because we can't always just be living off older stories. And that's beautiful. And that's you know, it sounds like like like. Um, that sounds like heresy to me a little bit, but also <laughs> it's really important to keep making new myths and new folk tales and new stories because other people will make them about us for us, so we might as well make our own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and myths come out of a need to explain something that's going on in the moment, um, and probably uh, I, I'm, I'm not an expert in this field by any means, but I can, I can imagine there's a sense of you know, I need this to be to feel away from where I am now so I can actually talk about it you know mm. yeah definitely and I think oh so um in Ireland there is a man called Eddie Lenahan who is a uh Shaunsha, I may be pronouncing that terribly but as far as I know it's pronounced Shaunsha, which is a traditional Irish uh oral storyteller folklorist sort of um sort of uh yeah storyteller basically and mm-hmm. um Eddie Lenahan uh, got very famous a few years ago. Like he's, He was already quite well known, I think, but uh, he got very famous when there was going to be a road uh, built in Ireland that would have gone through an old fairy tree which had so many stories mm. linked in with it. And one of Eddie Lenahan and Eddie Lenahan like, led a really um, solid campaign to get the, the, the uh, direction of the road changed or like the route of it changed so that this tree could be left to stand. It, it succeeded in the end. And one of the ways that he did that was he told people the stories of the tree mm. um, and all of the stories of, uh, that, that had built up around it over you know centuries or decades or, or millennia and had been um, you know, like what, would ha- what happened from the tree or what happened to people who hurt the tree or what happened to 
what happened with the 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 you know the, the creatures that were there and it's I think it's a really important way for us to be able to tie into believe in and protect the environment around us because we love stories like that's just what we do and it's a way for us to really go oh this is important to us how can we talk about that in ways that are are positive for us mm. so that's uh, there's a um there's something um Act- activate i think are doing sometime soon um with the inside out festival with um the wild woodbury area which is a rewilding area um in dorset and uh, it's one of the one of the uh, sort of uh like commissions they've got open at the mm. moment is for soup and a story where you come up with a a soup recipe and a story linked into the local area into like wild mm. woodbury or the dorset area of natural beauty and mm. I think storytelling and climate activism are so like intrinsically linked. Mm, so, mm. yeah, I think that could be a lot of fun. Mm, yeah, it sounds it. It sounds it. And it, it's it's like what you're speaking about the need to connect and and the and the and the, the benefits you get and the joy you get from connecting with your local area and feeling feeling it speaks to you and you're connected to it. I think a way to do that is 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 through writing in in, in a way because. You know, think about how much extra credence we give to to things in the natural world where we feel there's a story connected to it. You know, like or how things build up. Like, oh, I don't want to, um, you know, um, sort of just riffing here, but like, I, I, I don't want to, um, you know, cut down this particular tree because you know I've heard about this legend about this particular tree. So, you know, I'm, I go, you know, think twice about doing that. Um, and you know, some people might write that off as sort of childish or silly, but I think it's really speaking to our inherent um, uh, desire as, as and, and, and sort of necessity really as human beings to tell stories and, and to and to connect with the world around us. Yeah, definitely. I'd always be really, really intensely wary of anyone who writes anything off as childish or silly because mm-hmm. it's usually really important stuff. Like, you know, we talk about how um, adults don't know how to play and it's really bad for their mental health. Well, I wonder why that is. It's because we've been told it's childish and silly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so much in the world that is so direly important to us to be alive as humans that gets written off like that and it's just it's all fake <laughs> like a while ago um i was walking down alum chine in bournemouth and there is a tree with a hole in it that is exactly the right size for me to put my face in which guess how i found that out <laughs> so i went and put my face in the tree and i was feeling really miserable that day and so I told it a whole load of like secrets that I was really upset about. And now I tell people it's the secret hole. And when they're really like miserable and we're nearby it, then I'll be like, come on, we're going to go to the secret tree and we're going to go and talk to the secret hole and the, the tree will like take it away. And now that's become a special tree to like me and a few friends because it's now the secrets tree. And, you know, that's something so simple. But we love doing stuff like that as people. We just like coming up with stories about the world around us and special things around us, whether that's, you know, don't step on the cracks in the pavement, mm. which is, you know, a quite modern thing, really, when you think about it. Or, yeah, don't cut this tree down because it's, you know, it's a powerful tree. Mm. Like the Glastonbury thorn. Like that was, do you remember when the Glastonbury thorn got cut down? Uh, vaguely. So um, some guy, uh, I think he was a like a, a Christian religious fanatic, went and cut down the Glastonbury thorn. Um which uh, was this hugely sacred tree, not just to, you know, pagan folks and Wiccan folks, but also to a lot of Christian folks, because it was supposedly, I believe, the um, staff of Joseph of Arimathea. 
which he would have brought uh, here when he brought the Holy Grail here. So, you know, going back into all the Arthurian stuff as well. And that was huge. There were news articles about it. It's been, it's still talked about now. There are still ribbons tied around the stump. There are loads of like children of the Glastonbury thorn that were like cuttings taken off it or seeds mm. from it that have then been grown, that are being grown around. And it's like, it's, you know, it's a, it's still a really big sort of cultural ripple emanating out from that. Mm. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Which, yeah, comes from, a really a story that is really connected with the local community mm. and um and um doesn't want to stop being told you know mm. and i love that what you were talking about the um the kind of new meaning you read into this 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 tree with a wonderfully face shaped hole in it i feel <laughs> that that's a really joyful thing i feel that's like what i love about i think the pursuit of trying to find more uh, joy whether as a queer person or just uh, you know just just finding joy at, like um in itself and it's like for me, it is finding like little bits of magic in in the world around me, and a lot of it comes with like kind of looking at nature and and um, and just just kind of either just experiencing something really beautiful. I saw like a, a blood mint, blood red moon yesterday, and you can read into that loads of human things if you want, or you can just think this is really beautiful, and I'm, and I'm just gonna sit and enjoy it. And um, but I think I think yeah, sort of finding your own sort of um playful interpretation on on the world uh is a really is a really joyful thing yeah definitely like i think it's when you're walking along the road and you you know you spot a beautiful flower or you go oh that cloud looks like a bird or you see you know a, a brick that's crumbling and it's got like a face carved in it or something you know it's it's just a way of being connected to the world and yourself and it's just nice it's fun it's nice to notice stuff it's nice to tell yourself little stories about things it's it uplifts you <laughs> we absolutely. all need uplifting at the moment yeah absolutely absolutely more up- uplift please Psst. it's a joint production by reba rush and artful scribe to find out about and get involved in the fantastic work that artful scribe do please go to artfulscribe.co.uk you can follow them on the socials at artful scribe follow re at reba rush to find out what they're up to Thank you.